Welcome back to Research Unpacked from the Informed Performance Podcast. My name is Dylan Carmody, and I'm a physical therapist and strength and conditioning coach from the U.S. On today's show, we have Danny Lum, and we'll be discussing his research on isometric exercise, more specifically, his recent paper, comparing the acute effects of session of isometric strength training with heavy resistance training on neuromuscular function. This episode has been sponsored by Vol Performance, makers of Forstex, the world's fastest, easiest, and most powerful dual force plate system. Forstex can help you to analyze neuromuscular strength, performance, and imbalances in your athletes. With an incredibly simple setup and intuitive software, Forstex automatically detects over 15 common force plate tests and analyzes them with a single click, helping you to collect quick and accurate insights on your athletes. To learn more, head over to our sponsor, volperformance.com. Informed Performance is a proud partner of HUMAC Norm by CSMI. By using the HUMAC Norm isokinetic system, you can see what you are treating. An isokinetic test measures maximum muscle capacity through range of motion. So when you're comparing an athlete's involved sides results to their uninvolved, this system makes it easy but objective to see where strength deficits exist to help you design a very efficient path to function. Then follow-up testing on the machine will confirm if your athlete or athletes are on the right path or if changes still need to be made. To learn more about the new Humac Norm and their refurbished machines, visit humacnorm.com. Danny, welcome to the show, man. Thanks a lot. Thanks for um, inviting me over. <laughs> of course, man. We uh, are very excited to dive into all things isometrics with you, and I think today's going to be a super fun conversation for not just us, but hopefully the listeners as well. So for anyone who may not be familiar with who you are just yet or haven't read any of your research, um, would you mind just sharing your current roles and responsibilities and maybe a little bit of the path that you took to get there as well? Okay. So um, um, my name's Danny Lam. Um, I'm the head of strength conditioning at uh, Singapore Sport Institute. So um, I did. I started my PhD studies in um, 2018 and uh, my topic of research was on isometric strength training. So um since then I've been I've done quite a number of um isometric training studies and uh yeah the the thing that started me on isometric training was um back in twenty fifteen I was training our judo team and um you know with grappling sports you have a lot of um occasion you have a lot of um periods of uh isometric contraction during um during the fights so um i started including um isometric work with my athletes and um it went well with them um and uh, especially for one of the athletes who was um he's he was huge he was like 100 over 100 over 150 over to 200 kilogram and um it was really hard for him to do a lot of exercises because uh, he was just new to uh, resistance training so um isometric worked worked well for him and um they did well um in the in in the 2015 Southeast Asian games um usually the athletes uh, are always complaining about uh, them not being strong uh not able to match the um the the other um competitors from other countries in terms of strength wise so um it went well that year um they got 
strong enough and I thought well it worked well for the judo athletes let's try it out with other athletes as well um, so I did did some isometric training with um, our swimmers um, again uh, they most of them who, who actually did the isometric training uh, managed to achieve good results during the the competition uh, the subsequent competitions and um, well and after that um, I did a lot more literature review and um, I realized that there wasn't uh, much uh, research on isometric training for um, athlete performance so and that was how I started my PhD study yeah yeah that's awesome it's it's really cool to hear too that they're a little bit um, different athletic populations too right I feel like a lot of times we hear about isometric training or, um, you know, isometric resistance from a perspective of either rehab or performance training in, you know, athletes like basketball players, volleyball players, um, you know, soccer or things like that, uh, football for those also listening. Um, but it's interesting to hear about, um, more of these kind of tactical or combat based athletes or grappling athletes. And I know you've done some work with, um, you know, like paddling athletes, like kayakers and swimmers and things like that as well. And so it's just really cool to see the, the carryover that um, a style of training has to a bunch of different areas. But um, without getting too off track and uh, not talking about the thing before defining it, um, let's just go into some uh, ideas behind, you know, the definition of isometrics um, and how we can kind of differentiate isometrics versus um, just more traditional resistance training or something like isotonics. All right. So isometric training, isometric uh, muscle action involves, uh, generating of force without any external movement so um, in the literature you can uh, identify two types of isometric the hole and the the hole and the push isometric so the push isometric involves uh, pushing against something that you can't move exerting force against something you can't move uh, for example pushing the wall or um, you load up the barbell and um, you try to do a deadlift but it was, it's too heavy for you to lift it while the whole um, involve uh, resisting uh, resisting a given amount of force and um, not having uh, any movement so um, examples like uh, wall seat uh, prone planks side planks these are uh, whole isometric muscle action and um well isometric difference between isometric and traditional resistance training is basically uh isometric training you you have no uh movement right you're still producing force uh, exerting high amount of force but uh there's simply no movement um and advantage of isometric because uh there's no there's no movement involved, so the risk of injury is much lower. And um, with traditional resistance training, you we tend to have the eccentric phase, uh, which we know that eccentric phase usually, uh, if if you are doing very heavy eccentric, uh, you get domes, uh, delayed onset muscle soreness. With isometric, um, you have uh, less uh it's it's less likely for you to get uh domes yeah totally yeah i love that and also some of the 
more recent literature on isometrics is that like you can even have like a protective effect uh, from getting DOMS before, like if you're performing some type of isometric exercise before a eccentric or before um, isotonic exercise. Is that, is that, am I getting that right? Yeah. Yeah. There, there were, uh, there were some studies on it. Uh, I think a couple of years back, I think that the most um, recent, thing about isometric training is um its effect on blood pressure so um yeah that was that that was in um the british journal i can't remember the med uh, yeah <laughs> sorry just slipped my mind what the journal is yeah it it's uh there was there was a meta analysis on it and uh, they found that compared to other modes of exercise including aerobic um isometric training seems to have um the greatest uh, beneficial effect on um, lowering blood pressure. Yeah. So many interesting uh, like rabbit holes that you can go down with that. Um, I feel like, especially, you know, previously when people think about isometric exercise, they think about like this highly strained activity where you would assume um, just due to, you know, maybe uh, blood shunting activities or things like that from the tension inside a muscle like that, um, the blood pressure itself would increase rather than, you know, maybe on the, from a longevity perspective, the actual blood pressure as a whole, um, at a resting, uh, intensity, I guess would be decreased over time, but that's, that's very interesting. Um, going in a little bit more in terms of the paper that you have just recently published, um, can you just give us a little background in terms of what the reason was for the paper and just kind of what your, overall, I guess, kind of research question was and why you really wanted to ask that question in the first place. Okay, um, so there, there, there were a number of... Uh, I was just trying to compare the fatiguing effect of um, traditional uh, heavy resistance training and isometric training. Uh, there were studies in the past to compare the different types of muscle contraction, so eccentric, isometric... But um, but uh, they weren't. They did not use um, exercises that were commonly used during a strength conditioning training, so things like squats, lunges, RDLs. So I decided um, to have a look at it, um, and so we in, in that paper the the traditional strength training, um, or basically. We use uh, squat RDL and uh, split squat, and uh, with the traditional strength training, I actually use the velocity-based uh, training method to um, prescribe the number of repetitions per set. Um, so we use a 20 percent um, threshold, twenty percent um, velocity threshold uh, to uh, s- uh, stop that particular set. Right, so meaning uh, those who are not familiar with it, um, I got the participants to lift the weights and um, I have a linear transducer to measure the velocity of the lift. And once the lift, uh, whichever repetition it is, that uh, showed that the velocity, the mean velocity had um, dropped by 20% from the highest velocity of that set, um, Participant will stop lifting for that particular set. So with that, um, because some research have shown that twenty uh, percent seems to be um, 
better at improving both strength and rate of force development. Um, that's why we use 20%. And with isometric training, um, we standardize it to uh, each set having uh, five repetition and three seconds contraction. Um, that's because um, my one of my research earlier research showed that this seems to be uh, effective at improving both uh, strength and rate of force development as well. So uh, we were not able to equalize um, in terms of intensity and volume because uh, they are basically very different type of um, contraction. Uh, but what we did was to use um, what seems like uh, one of the optimum method for improving strength and rate of force development as shown in the literature. So, so comparing this, um, mode, uh, these two modes of training, uh, that way. Um, and what we found was that acutely, so five minutes after both, uh, condition, um, the drop in performance were quite similar, but um, 24 hours later, uh, participants seems to be able to recover uh, better after isometric training as compared to um, heavy resistance training. So one of the reasons is probably due to the eccentric contraction involved during the heavy resistance training, and that um, induce uh, more soreness uh, and uh, more performance drop as compared to isometric training. So based on that result, um, we suggested that um, in times where uh, athletes are fatigued, um, in times where athletes are closer to competition, um, then maybe uh, coaches can substitute some heavy resistance training with um, isometric training um, so as to reduce the amount of fatigue induced on the athletes. And also, as you are closer to competition, um, and I mentioned earlier that isometric training, since it's, there's no movement involved, um, the risk of injury is lower. So, so uh, it seems like uh, it is a viable option for coaches to use. Uh, but one thing to note is this uh, study wasn't meant to compare which one is better at improving strength and uh, speed and so on. Um, so uh, I, I don't want uh, people to get misled into thinking that, oh, isometric training is the best and so on. Um, because I've always advocated that uh, you need to um, mix the training around so that you can take advantage of every mode of uh Every mode of uh, training to enhance and to enhance the athlete performance and um, to let the athlete uh, get the optimum um, adaptation. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that was perfect, Danny. Thank you for just giving a, a very nice summary and understanding of you know what your your paper said, and also uh, you're you're still in some of my questions. I dig it. I always love asking you know what does your paper say, and then what did your paper not say. Um, just because it's common for people to take things and run with it. But I, I appreciate what you had added there. Um, just because I think it's, it's important to understand like, all right, this is what we meant to do with the paper and this is what the paper showed. Um, we're not going to make any other extra claims of saying that then it's going to, you know, add a, a hundred percent to your next back squat session or something ridiculous. You know, it's like it, it just is helpful from a neuromuscular readiness perspective, maybe. Um, 
I'm curious about the uh, actual interventions themselves from the velocity-based training as well as from the isometric training. Um, so both of those, you were you did a great job of like quantifying what they were doing, right? You're quantifying velocity and also quantifying uh, both force and impulse and all those sorts of things. Um, when you were doing that with the participants, was there um, was that like a feedback based where like from the velocity based thing, like did the participants receive um, feedback based on how fast they were moving or did the uh, exercise stop once the threshold was not met without their knowledge of meeting it or not? Yeah. Uh, yeah. They, they did not get the feedback immediately. They, so uh, that means during the set, when they are executing the exercise, they, they did not get the feedback. Uh, but when they were resting, um, they were short um, what happened during that set. Okay, gotcha. And then from the isometric training perspective, obviously they were you know around the three second hold, if I am uh, correct in there. But um, did they did was there a similar format in terms of feedback in between um, yep. the actual sets as well? Yeah. So um, we we actually showed them what the, uh, the laptop, the screen on the laptop how how the force was like and things like this um right after the set yeah so every gotcha. set every set they get the feedback right after they're done with it that's great um yeah that's i mean super helpful too just to kind of uh, it's nice to see especially within um while they're still working but not maybe uh influencing the set itself as a whole yeah. um which i think is probably a, a pretty smart way to go about it um before we dive into a little bit more on the isometric side of things, I'm just curious to, for the listeners who maybe haven't read the paper, things like that, um, do you want to dive into some of the um, tests that you were using to assess for neuromuscular resonance and then maybe some of the findings that you saw with those specific tests? Okay. Um, so we used um, counter movement jump, sprints, um, isometric mid type pool. A little boring because it's the common test used to measure athletic performance, uh, but uh, it's simple and reliable, so we went ahead with it. Um, so what we found was that uh, with both both conditions, you can you we actually saw um, decrease in uh, performance um, for both. All, all three tests um, acutely. So uh, five minutes after that, we could see that there were drop in condom jump sprints and uh, strength performance. But uh, 24 hours later, um, all three tests performance drop uh, was still not recovered. They did not get back to baseline um, in the heavy resistance training condition. While in the isometric condition, um, they all went back to baseline. And um, we could see some participants, um, there was actually delayed potentiation effect. So there was a small improvement in, in, in the performance of, uh, for some participants. And um, one might think maybe they did not exert maximum force, but... Um, Based on what we saw on from uh, the graph, uh, uh, because they, they 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 perform all exercises on the force plate, so we could actually tell that they are actually uh, whether they are actually exerting maximum force or not. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we controlled that, and um, 
Yeah, so based on that, we, we, we found that um, isometric training seems uh, people who perform is the participants when they perform isometric training, they seem to be able to recover uh, quite quickly within 24 hours. And um, it's quite consistent with um, literature in um, in regard to heavy resistance training. So uh, most other studies that uh, looked at the uh, fatiguing effect of heavy resistance training have shown that uh, it takes 48 to 72 hours um, to recover back to baseline if um, people are actually doing um, intensive uh, resistance, heavy resistance training. And um, with heavy, with resistance training, dynamic resistance training, um, again, because we use the 20% velocity threshold, our participants did not uh, get to failure every set. None of the set actually. So um, even then, uh, it requires uh, more than 24 hours. Um, so there are athletes or people who likes to get to failure every every set or at least one set per session. Um, with that, they probably need even more time to recover. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's definitely a, a talking point that I feel like I've brought up with um athletes before in the past is like this idea of you know like if if all days are high then no days are actually high you know in terms of intensity you know like if you're going to failure on every single you know like time you're walking into the gym on a certain exercise well you're probably your actual neuromuscular readiness or your ability to perform that exercise is already inhibited on day two or day three of attempting that exercise than it would be so already you're not going in with a full tank of gas um, and so making sure that there's either uh, sufficient um, exercise programming that allows for either active recovery or some type of other methods in terms of making sure somebody who may, uh, for whatever sport demands, needs to have a higher volume of training, um, that people can actually still work around that. However, making sure that we're not still just, uh, you know, beating a dead horse, so to speak, um, there. But uh, one thing that I found pretty interesting within the paper um, was the key performance indicators that you used for the counter movement jump in terms of, you know, using mean propulsion force, time to take off, um, propulsion phase time, all those sorts of um, variables. I think a lot of times um, when there are uh, people who are kind of appraising research and playing the like a uh, armchair quarterback kind of position, so to speak, uh, people can poke at things and say, well, they just took a lot of different variables that mean the same thing um, or that are trying to uh, represent the same idea um, just so that they could try and find some significance. Um, but actually in the paper, you guys had a really cool uh, point in terms of the interaction of some of these variables that may have like led to the outcome that you were observing. Yeah. Um, I'm trying not to steal your thunder, but um, can you just maybe speak on that a little bit within the isometric group? Okay. So uh, first I want to give uh, credit to, uh, a group of uh, scientists. Um, the lead author was David Bishop. So uh, I think a couple of years back, they wrote a paper um, and it was published in a strength conditioning journal about um, measuring the matrix of jumps. And um, so with that, uh, my decision to use those matrix was influenced by that paper. And um, so a lot of time um, when you see research, they measure 
counter movement jump. Um, it's just jump hike. Um, but with jump hike, we don't know what actually influence uh, the change in jump hike. So like right now, if I get you to do vertical jump, three repetition of it, um, your jump height can change by quite a fair bit um, by with you just performing the jump differently. So if I didn't actually measure things like counter movement depth, uh, contraction time, and so on, um, I wouldn't know what actually changed the jump height. Yeah. So um, with and and that was why um, we added it in um, to provide readers with more information on um, why uh, there was change in jump height. Was there a change in jump strategy and and so on? So we could see that um, uh, there wasn't much change in contraction time um, for the isometric training group. Um, there wasn't much change in jump height as well, um, meaning that uh, the jump they did not change the jump strategy um, even after they they were fatigued. And um, same for the, actually it was the same for the heavy resistance group as well. Uh, they did not change the strategy because the counter movement depth wasn't changed that much. Um, but you could see that uh, even though the counter movement depth was similar, but the contraction time was longer. Right? Meaning that they weren't able to exert force quick as quickly as they were uh, before the resistance training. Yeah. So we know then what is the cost for the change in jump height, right? So if, if I see a change in jump height and then I see that, uh, contraction time did not change, but there was a change in counter movement there, then I know what is the cost of that change in jump height, right? So this is why, um, we wanted to include all these param, uh, variables and, this allows um, readers to have better idea um, uh, behind uh, on the mechanisms behind all these changes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, in total, it's it's the understanding. You know, like these are the determinants of the jump height itself, and being able to understand that um, you know there may not be one specific like this changes and this changes and this changes, but because there are so many different variables that are influencing, or there are so many different determinants of this jump height. Um, it is important to make sure that we can track, you know, as many of them as possible so that we can understand what's influencing what based on um, the interventions that you guys gave, as well as the, um, I guess, subsequent adaptations or responses that were occurring to those sorts of interventions. Um, I am going to pivot a little bit here and go a little bit more into these, uh, the idea of implementing isometrics and things like that and talk a little bit more about that. Before we had talked about this idea, whether they're called overcoming or yielding or pushing and holding, HIMA, PIMA, there's a bunch of different words that all mean essentially the same thing with these different types of isometrics. Um, can you tell me about the specific type of ex uh, isometric that you guys used in the paper and then why you ended up using that type of isometric? Okay, so um, we used the push isometric, which is um, exerting force against something you can't move. And the reason why we do that is because uh, we've pushed isometric train, uh, we've pushed isometric contraction. 
um, you can actually exert maximal voluntary force, uh, voluntary contraction, uh, and exert max amount of force within each position. Uh, with whole isometric, we'll have to use a submax load. Yeah. Um, both in in the literature, you can see that both um, isometric action has uh, quite distinct um, differences. Um, you can see that uh, push with the whole whole isometric, um, people tend to fatigue earlier at the same um, given intensity um, for the lower for for the extremities, but for the trunk muscle, um, the muscles can exert a force longer with whole isometric as compared to push. Um, this is probably because uh, uh, the difference in uh, daily usage of the muscle. Our trunk muscles are meant to hold the position of our posture and um, and that's why it's adapted to um, the whole uh, isometric action while the extremity tends to be pushing things around. Um, so it's more suitable for the push uh, isometric action. Yeah. So yeah, the main, main, main reason is um, also because uh, most of my research, I've used the push isometric, and um, and I'm more familiar. I'm basically more familiar with that. Um, less, uh, less is studied. Um, even the current literature, less is studied. Um, for the whole isometric, how it affects uh athlete performance and so on. And um, the 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 prescription method and everything is uh, not standardized as well. It's not it's not as uh, standardized as the push isometric. So um, at the moment, uh, that and that that's why I have used the uh, push isometric instead. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, and and that's super understandable and helpful. It's a little bit easier as well to kind of constrain the movement as well, just to make sure that you're getting what you really want to get out of it. Um, with that, obviously, so part of the interventions was that you had multiple joint angles for a lot of these isometric positions. Um, and one of them was a hinge type position, right? Um, however, also one of the uh, tests or the KPIs that you were using as well was this uh, isometric mid-thigh pole. Um, given some of the similarities between that kind of like uh, overcoming hinge base position as well as an isometric mid-thigh pole, um, did you feel or do you feel like there could have been some type of um, like learning effect that could have happened between those when you go from pre to post? Um, or do you think that that would kind of came out in the wash? Uh, it wouldn't. It's... Okay, the muscle action would have been different. Um, cause with mid thigh pull, it's actually, uh, a more upward vertical push. While the hinge, you know, you're trying to basically get your hips coming forward. So the muscle action, well, at least the intended muscle action would have been this very different. Yeah. And muscle utilization is quite different as well with the RDL hinge. Um, we're looking more at uh, activating the glutes and uh, the hamstring. With the isometric mid-thigh pull, um, there's a lot, it's a lot more quad dominant. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And also it's, I think it's, 
important to note that this was a crossover trial as well. So it wasn't yeah. just that, you know, there was one group that then was able to get some better effect or they were better able to be anchored to a heavy mm-hmm. stimulus. And then the other group wasn't, um, both groups were getting the same thing essentially. Yeah, yeah. But we, we, I, so that, that's why, um, I would use the word both condition instead of both groups because they were the oh, same group yeah. of people. Yeah. Super fair. Um, when it comes to some of these kinds of uh, implementations or the the programming behind this types of these types of like overcoming isometrics, um, commonly there's this concept of the repetition duration reserve. Um, can you maybe go into you know what this concept is and maybe what your thought process was in terms of programming these types of isometrics in terms of like the timing um, of each repetition? Okay. Honestly, unfortunately, um, I have not studied too much into, um, into it. Um, when, when, what, when we did the, um, study, um, what I've noticed is that, um, the force, so from rep one to the rep five, and even from the very first set to the final repetition of, uh, the third set or fourth set, the force did not, uh, the peak force did not actually drop more than, uh, 15% for all, uh, all participants. So, uh, if I go, uh, as compared to the velocity, if I compare it to the velocity threshold, uh, heavy resistance, it's quite similar. Like, uh, we didn't want them to go below 20%. So, uh, yeah, our, Unintentionally, the training, um, was, um, it actually kept participants, um, at the end, at the end of the um, training session, they were sort of still within the 80% of their max capacity. Yeah. So, um, we, ha- I have not really looked at, um, uh, what is the optimum um in terms of uh uh how much force should we uh retain after each session for isometric training so um uh, like like for velocity training for example again um you, you have seen in in research that they they try to make sure that they keep within the 20% velocity threshold or within the 10% velocity threshold. But with isometric training, um, we have not come up with a, 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 a guide to say, oh, every training you should make sure that participants should not drop with to what percentage of um, uh, peak force. Yeah, so with that, we have not looked at it yet. But um, so far... Based on what I have always been using, three times five times three seconds or less, um, it seems to be quite effective um, to enhance athlete performance. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, but with if if we look at um, the post-activation performance enhancement effect, uh, we would. During each set of um, isometric contraction, um, we should keep it within five seconds. 
Yeah, so based on what I've seen in literature, um, anything above five seconds probably cause too much fatigue. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And that's that's my understanding too, especially when you look at some of the other work from like, you know, what Alex Natera puts out and some other isometrics based researchers, you know, the the idea, I guess, from the repetition duration reserve was just, you know, if you're going all out at theoretically giving 100%, most people can probably hold on to that for about 10 seconds, you know, and so if you're cueing somebody to say, you're going to go as hard and as fast as you can, um, generally trying to keep to like that 20 to 30% um, kind of range is helpful just so that like we've been saying, you know, we don't want that fatigue to drop or that, um, that peak force to drop because of fatigue or things like that. But um, yeah, it's just a super interesting concept and area to explore even further. But um, understanding that, you know, isometrics are commonly described as these sort of position specific um, exercises. Can you unpack maybe just like what we mean by saying position specific and how we may be able to kind of improve not only our force production, but maybe like the technique or technique or technical force transfer um, aspects of exercise? Okay, so um, if mm, how should I put it? All right, so um, people have the 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 perception that if you train isometric training at do isometric training at one hundred and twenty degree knee angle, you will only be strong at one hundred and twenty degree knee angle. Um, yes, you will gain most amount of um strength at one hundred and twenty degree knee angle, but um you will still gain strength through a certain range of movement. So how much um, range, it's dependent on, um, again, the angle that you train at. So if you want to have a greater increase, through, you, you want to have increase uh, through a greater range of movement, then you, want, you should train at the angle where muscle length is longer. So, so I take quads for example. So, um, so let's say this is my quads, and uh, if I get my knee to bend to ninety degree angle, as compared to one hundred and twenty degree knee angle, my quads will be stretched to a longer length at at ninety degree. So, if I train at ninety degree, uh, as compared to one hundred and twenty, my strength will increase to a greater range, through a greater range, say thirty forty degree. But with 120 degree, maybe the strength can only will only increase through a range of 15 to 20 degree. So that is an example of um, uh, how we can increase our strength if we use isometric training through a greater range of movement. Yeah. But um, if we look at trying to increase hypertrophy, then um, Working at a longer muscle length would uh, be more favorable. So it's pretty similar to uh, dynamic training. If you want to have more hypertrophy, go through the greater range of movement. Yeah, no, I, I love that. Um, and it's it's super interesting just to understand that idea of, you know, especially, um, you know, maybe the, the exact mechanisms haven't been unpacked there. But I do think kind of like what you've been saying, there's, there's definitely some relationships there in terms of... Um, you know, the, the greater muscle length as well as the greater range of motion from a hypertrophy based, um, training perspective. Um, so in terms of this kind of implementation of these sorts of ideas, especially when you're talking about, 
um, a push versus a hold for different um, aspects of training. Um, would there be times, you know, understanding more that like this kind of hold isometric uh, would almost induce more of this quasi eccentric type quality? Would you, are there certain times in which you would want to implement something like that over a push isometric? Okay. Um, so we did a preliminary study comparing uh, push and ice, uh, and whole ISO. Uh, what we found was that um, the whole ISO seems to be more effective in um, inducing hypertrophy, while the push seems to be better at increasing the maximal strength. So say um, at this phase, training phase, my my emphasis is more on hypertrophy and then I want to include some isometric training as well. So then I'll use um, the whole isometric method. Right? But when it comes to um, improving rate of force development and uh, maximal strength, then I would... Uh, prefer to use the push isometric training method. Yeah. Um, in terms of um, whether it helps more with um, concentric and um, eccentric, uh, we have not really uh, looked into it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, yeah, all of those different uh, implementation styles and mechanisms behind it is is always just interesting for me to kind of soak up. So I, I appreciate that a lot. Um, trying to, you know, be conscious of your time here and we'll probably be wrapping up shortly, but um, you guys mentioned that there was a greater impulse that was incurred within the isometric group versus the heavy resistance training. Um, however, you know, there was equal or essentially equal rating of perceived exertion, um, actually improved perceived recovery status within the isometric training group, um, as well as improved, you know, actual recovery of some of that uh, neuromuscular qualities that you were accessing. Can you maybe walk us through just some of the mechanisms that we may be able to use to describe the phenomena that we're seeing where it's like, well, if someone's experiencing more impulse, mm. but they're actually better recovered, you know, can we just unpack some of that? Okay. So impulse, we know is um, force multiplied by the time. So the amount of force you produce at a certain time. With isometric um, muscle action, you can actually sustain a given force uh, longer as compared to con- concentric and eccentric uh, action. So... Um, because each repetition for the ISO condition was actually um, maximal effort, so uh, and three seconds holding for three seconds. So participants basically uh, attempted to produce maximal force for a duration of fifteen seconds for that uh, for each set, right? But uh, with the heavy resistance. Uh, training, it's not possible for me to get participants to do repetitions of 1RM, right? Yeah, so uh, the load was, each repetition was at sub-maximal, 80, 80, more than 80% um, for the squat and um, uh, close to 80% for it was, um, so for RDL, it was at 90% of the 1RM squat. So in terms of um, uh, relative intensity for RDL, it's also close to 80% of uh, the maximum intensity. And then um, for the speed squat, we did 35% of 1RM squat. 
So um, that gave us a range of um, around six, five to seven repetition before they get to uh, 20% loss, uh, threshold loss. So you can see that each repetition for heavy resistance training was at um, sub-maximum load. So, um, and that is why if you look at the total impulse, it wasn't possible for heavy resistance um, condition to have as high of uh, total impulse as compared to isometric, and that uh, explains the uh, lower lower total impulse. And why the fatigue? Um, why why is there great faster recovery for iso? Um, uh, as I mentioned earlier, isometric uh, compared to eccentric. Eccentric would cause um, more uh, muscle damage, more uh, muscle soreness. And uh, that is probably one of the reasons why we can see a faster recovery for isometric as compared to heavy resistance training. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and it's a it's just a really interesting way in terms of we can kind of still allocate high and heavy loads, you know, to a system. Um, the the idea of like the the classic like general adaptation syndrome from Hans Selye, you know, years ago, kind of rings a bell in, in my head of like. We almost want, like, by implementing some level of isometric training, we're trying to mitigate some of that kind of alarm phase or that dip in the graph that people may be imagining um, as much as possible while still trying to amplify the resistance or, like, the potentiation or um, however else you'd like to describe that effect or the improvement. Um, so we're essentially just trying to get as much bang for buck as we can within a certain type of exercise, you know, and it's, um, I always just find that, especially when you equate things to impulse, which I always enjoy doing. Um, it's just very interesting to me. Um, but Danny, thank you so much for just being on the podcast, sharing all the insights that you have and the information. Um, is there anything else that we haven't talked about, about the paper or about your work that you would like to just touch on before we close things up? Mm, okay. So, um, I mentioned earlier that, um, I think this is very important um, uh, to avoid to avoid um, coming to conclusion that which training method is better than the other. Um, as I mentioned, we we should never do that because uh, that is um, just basically shortchanging our athletes. So what we need to do is um, to better study each each training method, understand what are the advantages and disadvantages, and then plan the training accordingly um, using different methods at different time points um, to help our athletes enhance their performance. Yeah, So I think um, that is probably the most important thing we coaches have to do. Totally. Yeah. It's a, it's a, you're studying the thing for what it is, not necessarily comparing it to something else, but just saying, Hey, this is isometric training, or this is eccentric training, or this is, um, sprint training or something, you know, this is what it is. This is what it does. Um, and these are the things that we can hang our hat on in terms of like what it is and what it does. Um, rather than saying it is better than an eccentric or it is better than an isometric or whatever it is. Um, we're at some point, you know, depending on how you're categorizing exercises, we're comparing apples to oranges to begin with. And so saying that you like oranges, I'll just say, okay, cool. I'm an apples guy, you know? Um, so Danny, knowing that we have, um, a similar audience in terms of, you know, um, whether they be researchers, rehab professionals, strength and conditioning coaches, sports scientists, all this kind of realm of human performance, um, 
based on like understanding who our audience is and these interests, who do you think that we should have on next on the podcast? You're right. So um, one, one of the person I, I like to follow is Gareth Sanford. Yeah. So Gareth um, does a lot on um, uh, work a lot on uh, endurance training. Um, he looks at um, uh, VO2 max, uh, maximal sprint uh, speed reserve and things like that. Yep. So um, it it would be interesting to talk to him. Yep. Okay. I love it. We'll, uh, we'll be sure to reach out to him and uh, try and get him on the podcast. Um, and then final question, how can others, you know, find you if they want to connect with you or just learn more about the research that you're doing? Um, if you want to talk about any of the other ventures that you're doing as well, feel free to share it with the audience. Yep. Um, I'm on Twitter. I'm on um, Instagram. So uh, people can look for me, Danny Lam. Yeah. Awesome. Right on, Danny. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Your insights are greatly appreciated, and I hope that we connect soon. All right. Thanks a lot. Thanks for the invitation.